We welcome you once again to the John A. Ritzo Come Follow Me study of the New Testament. Uh, I'm Robert Millett and I'm joined by my dear friend Craig Blumberg, who for many years was professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. Good to see you again. How's Denver? Um, Recovering from a bit of a tornado yesterday and a lot of hail, but uh, I think we'll make it. Good, good. Our hope today is to get started on uh, the Acts of the Apostles, talk some about it, about the first chapter, and perhaps in the second uh, half hour, talk about uh, chapter two and and a bit about chapter five in Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Craig, you're, you're a New Testament expert. Sit back and tell us, what is the Acts of the Apostles? <laughs> It is a unique genre in terms of the New Testament. Um, It's not a gospel, it's not a letter, it's not an apocalypse, but it is a cross between uh, history and selected biographies that covers uh, significant events in the first 30 or so years of the history of the church. And uh, as I think you're going to elaborate on. Um, The one thing it is not is the nice balanced um, tracy of what each of the 12 apostles did. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, if I remember right, it's a two part, the second part of the two part work, Luke Acts, right? That's right. Uh, If we accept the testimony of the early church, this is the beloved physician that. Paul uh, speaks of at the end of a couple of his letters, who appears on the scene uh, about five different times uh, when the narrative in Acts switches from talking in the third person about what other people did to all of a sudden saying, and we did this, and we did that, suggesting that the author was present uh, at that time, uh, especially in the sections where Paul is on his travels. Craig, I was thinking uh, this room as I went back and reviewed Acts, I was reminded of uh, it seems to me that if you're reading the book of Genesis, that the author, be it Moses or whomever, um, as quickly as he can, tries to get to Abraham. He's, he's there in 11 chapters. And it seems to me, and you tell me if you think this is uh, questionable, that Luke has one very pressing move he wants to make and that's to get us to the apostle paul as quickly as he can and we get there by six or seven chapters right we we first meet him uh, at the end of the account of the stoning of stephen at the end of chapter seven the beginning of eight um and it's just almost a throwaway comment as if people should recognize who this Saul of tarsus is But then in chapter nine, we get a fuller account of his conversion, maybe expecting to continue to follow him. But Luke drops the thread once again uh, until chapter 13. And then he picks up Paul and follows him all the way to the end of the book. Okay. I was, uh, I was, I'm fascinated by what Elder Holland, I was in the meeting when Elder Jeffrey Holland uh, talking to religious educators about the New Testament, and he began to talk about Acts, and he said, uh, 
I'd like to suggest a different title for this book. Here he said, here it is. The Acts of the Resurrected Christ, Working Through the Holy Spirit in the Lives and Ministries of His Ordained Apostles. And then Elder Holland said, now having said that, you can see why someone voted for the shorter title. But my suggested title is much more accurate, he said. What do you think and, of that definition? Um, I think it combines together what a lot of other commentators have said. Uh, certainly, I've heard the acts of the resurrected Christ, the acts of the Holy Spirit. I've also heard people say it should be called the acts of Peter and Paul, because mm -hmm. uh, Peter is the prominent person in the first the 12 chapters. chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Uh, I think Elder Holland is is right on target. That would be a more descriptive title, and it's way too long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's turn to chapter one. Um, Greg, why don't you read for us? Uh, just go ahead and read for us up through verse five, and we'll come back and talk about certain verses. Okay. From the NIV in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was still alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Is there a consensus, Craig, on who or what Theophilus is, whether it's a person or if it's a lover or friend of God or to all lovers and friends of God? What do you think? I think today, more so even than... than uh, a few decades ago, uh, there's pretty widespread agreement that Theophilus would have been a person uh, because uh, this is how uh, ancient historians um, dedicated books to their patrons. Uh, Luke would have needed some help to do the historical research that he did, even purchasing uh, a papyri and ink and possibly hiring a scribe. Uh, and so Theophilus may well be the, the person who uh, gave the lion's share of, of the money, the resources to uh, make this happen. Good. I tend to agree with you. I, I, I think it, it, it's, it reads a bit too personal in some ways to be just a broad, I'm writing to all Christians, you know. Um, this, this verse that you read, verse 3, in King James, he showed himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs. Um, I was looking at other translations of that many infallible pr uh, proofs. Here's the Revised English Bible. He showed himself after his death and gave ample proof that he was alive. In the New Revised Standard, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. And of course, you read the New International. Is there a thought as to what goes on during that or, or some insights as to what goes on during that 40 days? It says, you know, speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, but 
What do you think, Craig? What's going on? I, days I like to uh, I like to suggest, that especially in light of the end of Luke, where uh, on two separate occasions um, it says that Jesus explained, beginning with the law and through the Psalms and the prophets, how everything that referred to him had to be fulfilled. And so, uh, as somebody who's who's taught. Um, college and seminary students all his career. I, I like to think of this as the greatest Old Testament survey course in the history of, uh, of humanity. Um, can't prove that, but uh, you probably didn't need uh, repeated uh, appearances for 40 days just to explain the kingdom of God. But if he was amplifying, expanding on this idea that the Hebrew scriptures over and over again in all kinds of ways pointed to him. That could take a little while. Yes. I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking too about this. One Latter-day Saint writer, one of my teachers from years ago, uh, Robert Matthews, hmm. he wondered about the possibility as to whether it was during this period of time that Christ may have set up a more sophisticated organization of the church. Paul refers in Ephesians to some of the officers. In, in the New Testament, I mean, excuse me, in the Gospels, we know there are apostles, elders, 70. Do you know of any others? I think that's about it, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, went, uh, regardless of what all went on, wouldn't it have been amazing 40 days to be spent with the Son of God who has risen from the dead, glorified, empowered. Uh, I really want to see this video one day. <laughs> well, even, even with the, the end of the Gospels, even if, if you go to the reinstatement of Peter in John 21, uh, we really don't get to see what that does to him or if he now suddenly becomes bold and eloquent and biblically literate in ways that he hasn't shown during jesus ministry yes but when we get to acts 2 we'll see him exactly that way so yeah. i suspect a lot went on to provoke that transformation that's a good insight um let me let me pick us up and read from 6 through 11 of chapter 1 from king james when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Just a thought about eight. It seems to me that this is the pattern that's followed in Acts, isn't it? Exactly. Jerusalem, the larger state of Judea, Samaria, the upper state, and then all the world. Um, what what do you think the nature of the question is? And King James, do you have? Is it clear in the NIV as far as what they're asking and what the and what he responds? I don't. I don't know if it's clear. Um... But restoring the kingdom to Israel, um, certainly throughout the Gospels, we get all kinds of hints that many Jews were looking for a Messiah who would uh, be a liberator of 
the people from Rome, throw off the oppressive power, maybe be a king ruling from Jerusalem, maybe be a, a general leading the troops in battle or both. And I suspect that uh, one of the reasons the disciples had such a hard time with the crucifixion was that it seemed to deflect all attention from that goal. And I can imagine them saying, okay, we really didn't get that crucifixion thing, but you're resurrected. Now is it the time to go into battle? <laughs> and Jesus says, mm, no, you still don't quite get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, very good. Let me, let, let's pick up, Craig, if you will, would you read, um, beginning in verse verses 12 through 14 first of all sure. then the apostles returned to jerusalem from the hill called the mount of olives a sabbath day's walk from the city when they arrived they went upstairs to the room where they were staying those present were peter john james and andrew philip and thomas bartholomew and matthew james son of alphaeus and simon the zealot and judas son of james 11 of them in other words Right, minus Judas Iscariot. <laughs> yes. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now we're going to skip ahead. Do 21 through 26. Peter, Peter calling together at this up. By the way, do, you, do we suppose, or are we su to suppose this upper room is the same upper room, perhaps, where the Last Supper was held? Seems like it was, yeah. And so uh, Peter quoting a couple of scriptures then says, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism, the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. And therefore, we both, in both of our churches, cast lots to this. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> to choose church leaders, right? <laughs> um it's interesting to me, uh, a pretty strong statement to the effect that we have we need to have someone who is a witness of the resurrection. Yep. Um, not necessarily that Christ had appeared to him personally, but that he he had been perhaps among that group that Paul names uh, in Corinthians, uh, up to five hundred people right. that saw the, the resurrected Lord. But that that seems to be the prerequisite, uh, the principal prerequisite. And, and part of the ministry all along, not just the Johnny come lately. Been laboring with them, perhaps probably traveling with them. You know, I was interested, Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history mm. suggests that it's Matthias. Oh, excuse me, that Matthias was a 70. And Eusebius had a lot of information uh, that yeah. we don't have from any other sources. Yeah. It could well be. Yeah, that he was a a, a lesser leader uh, than the apostles, but now chosen to go into that sacred fellowship of the, the apostles. Okay. Um, 
looking at this now, Craig, um, let's draw some concluding thoughts here together. Um, how much time has passed now? We're moving ahead. We're matter, are we a matter of days following um, Christ's ascent? We're told that uh, he appeared off and on for 40 days. And when we come to the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, that's 50 days later. Yep. So, yeah, we're within a period of less than two months. Okay. Um, well, that's... I love this particular chapter because it, it seems to be a, a wonderful way of transitioning into what takes place that is so significant in the next chapter. Which Let's pick up in our study of the Acts of the Apostles now with chapter two. I'm joined, of course, by Craig Blomberg, my great friend. Um, chapter two. Let's begin. I'll begin reading there, and then let's talk about a few things. Um, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pause there and we'll finish the rest of this in a minute. Craig, what do you sense is going on here? It's the day of Pentecost. As you said, it's 50 days after um, the Passover. And they are together, a rushing mighty wind. What What does the NIV say describing in verse 2? How does it describe it? Uh, a violent two, wind. Two and three. Like the okay. blowing of a violent wind. How about the cloven tongues like as of fire? This is, I'm guessing most people read verse 3 and say, what in the world is that? I, re I remember my, my mother using cloves in her cooking, but um, I don't think that's what we have here. Um, verse 3 just says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated the cloves. <laughs> um. I was. What did I do? I looked. I I went. I looked to see how some others translated it. Um, here's N.T. Wright's Kingdom New Testament. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like the sound of a strong blowing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then tongues, seemingly made of fire, appeared to them, moving apart and coming to rest on each of them. That's, I think that's a pretty good rendering too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, winds. Jesus and Nicodemus. The wind blows where it will. You hear the sound. Can't tell where it came from or where it's going. When in this case, wind, of course, the, the Greek word would be, uh, and the Hebrew word would be spirit, the spirit. Yeah. Yes. So the spirit is being poured out upon them. And they, they're given the gift of tongues and begin to speak with other tongues. Anything to add to that? Just that um, as we keep on reading, we, we see that these tongues are known languages that enable um, the people from so many different regions of the empire uh, to hear what Peter has to say in uh, 
in their own language, not that they could speak some Greek because that was the common language to a certain degree across the empire. And when Peter explains what happens, he presumably is speaking in Greek to the crowd, but there's something about hearing God speak in your own native tongue. And uh, yes. let's, why don't you pick up with five and uh, go until I just trip you. Um, I know this is every Bible reader's nightmare, but I have practiced it. So, right. <laughs> When we get to the, the uh, regions, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt in the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Let's pause there. What a fascinating occasion where by means of a uh, tremendous outpouring of the Spirit, the gospel is being preached, and it's being heard by each of them in their different languages. Yeah. Fascinating occasion. Fascinating occasion. Um, is there a... What, the, what is this demonstrating to you relative to the, the growth of the church? Well, it is, uh, as we'll discover um, by the near the end of chapter two, um, part of a series of events on this Pentecost uh, festival day that will bring 3,000 people to the Lord and really begin uh, the church as more than just a small band of Jesus followers. I think what's fascinating in the immediate context, and I suspected you would want me to stop in verse 12, but I kind of hope you would let me read verse 13. I, I'm is going to that do some, <laughs> however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. <laughs> Seriously? You can see this miracle and still not believe, and yet that is so consistent in Scripture. God reveals himself in even the most dramatic revelations. He never coerces faith. He always leaves room for rebellious people come up with some other, however, far-fetched explanation. Let's back up on a little point, but I think an interesting one for our, our listeners or viewers. Uh, at the end of verse 10, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, and you mentioned converts. What does a person have to do if they're a Gentile and want to become a Jew in the first century, Craig? Um, well, the simple answer is they have to indicate that, uh, be baptized as proselytes were, and commit to following the laws of Moses. That all sounds fairly innocuous until you separate people by gender. Because for the adult non-Jewish man, it required adult circumcision. Yes. In a world with pretty 
sophisticated surgical instruments by the standards of the day and nothing comparable to our anesthesia. This was a big commitment. (laughs) (laughs) In a sense, it was easier, not in a sense, in a very real way, it was easier to get female converts than to get male converts. I suspect it was. These are all drunk. 14. (laughs) Peter, Peter standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now, for some people, that wouldn't matter. (laughs) Uh, It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Right. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. I'm fascinated by how often the leaders of the church, when you go back to to Stephen even, his sermon is one ancient event Mm -hmm. as pointing to the Son of God, one after another after another. And and when, and when we come to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, he does the same kind of thing. Let's go back, and I'm going to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was what, what took place before, and all that they pointed toward. Don't you find that fascinating? It's a it's a rehearsal, basically, of of how to, how did we get where we are now? Well, everything pointed to this time. You cited Tom Wright earlier, and one of the points he's repeatedly stressed is at least in evangelical circles, you could talk about the gospel in detail and never once mention Israel or the Old Testament. Or you might mention creation and sin, but right. and then maybe Abraham, but quickly fast forward to Jesus. And all of the New Testament writers and speakers said, this is the climax of the story of Israel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded, too, that if you have no knowledge of the Old Testament, you don't have as strong an appreciation for the, the New Testament or the coming of the Savior or his dis, uh, distinctive mission and ministry that you could have if you if you would have that background to see what everything was pointing toward. Exactly. Um, the prophecy of Joel, then he begins, verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come. It seems to me that that if you were that what he has done, he's quoted a pretty lengthy prophecy from Joel, but a prophecy that would be talking about two different time periods. That is, the first one, this what you're seeing here is part of the prophecy of Joel that the day would come when the Spirit would be poured out in wondrous ways. But he gets he begins getting toward what you and I would call the signs of the times. Uh, wouldn't that be the case? And and that's so common in the New Testament uh, text in the Hebrew scriptures that talk about future events, but don't distinguish the near term from the, the far term. Um, yeah. Right. Good. And, and uh, the other interesting piece in that 
light is how verse 17 begins. This, this is a pretty carefully, almost exact quote yes. from Joel 2, and not all New Testament quotes are that way from the Old Testament. But Joel 2.28 simply says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Ah, so yes. at a Peter later time. interpreting this as saying, and this is the afterward. It has come now. These are the last days. Craig, uh, would, what document, if any, would they have been quoting? Would they have been quoting from um, Probably Aramaic paraphrases of the Hebrew text? Or what do you think? Or the Greek text? Peter, Peter probably in order to be understood by such a wide gathering of people, even if they were all Jews outside of Israel, Aramaic was not widely known. Um, he was probably speaking in Greek, and therefore he was probably quoting the, the Greek Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, and then, of course, goes on. In fact, verse 21. Uh, it sounds like Paul stuck himself into the into, <laughs> into the writing here. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on his name, the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's talk about that for a minute. How interesting it is. Um, Peter will use similar language when he's when he speaks of there is no other name under heaven by which salvation may come. But but this language, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, talk about that. What do you, what do you see there? The name of it certainly has to be more than just I know his name is Jesus. Right. The name, especially in in Hebrew, was someone's power, someone's authority, someone's identity. Um, so, yeah, it's not saying if you know the magical right name to pronounce, um, that makes you a believer. Uh, but if you call on the person whose power and authority corresponds to that of Yahweh, Jehovah, God of Israel, not any of the other gods of the nations that you may have traveled come from, he's the one who is our savior. It reminded me of when Moses is with the elders of Israel and he's just come down from seeing Yahweh and they say, what is his name? What is his name? Interesting. Um, Which, of course, seems to mean something like the eternally existing one. Yeah. Eh, yeah, Asha, eh, yeah. Huh? All right. Back to uh, our story. Why don't you pick up um, 22, Craig? Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about going to him, refer I saw to Old Testament passages, right? Now he's going to go back to Old Testament passages. You want me to keep going? Mm -hmm. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And, and here's what I find one of the most intriguing uh, arguments um, made out of the Old Testament and the New. Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. This was a Psalm of David. This, this was David saying, you won't let your Holy One see decay. And yet he did see decay. And so yes. Peter says, there must he be clearly, something more. He clearly couldn't be talking about himself. He, he was talking about someone which death could not conquer. Which is what 30 to 31, 32 go on to say. Yeah. Go ahead. Do those. 30, 31. Um, he was a prophet, David, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Let's pause there, Craig. This this expression right there in verse 32 is going to come up a time or two in Acts, isn't it? Yes. This, this powerful, we are his witnesses, the, the, the boldness that and the straightforwardness the apostles now immersed in the holy spirit they speak with power we're his witnesses you ought to obey god rather than man those kinds of things you know we can't help but speak of what we see experience yep. is powerful motivator go ahead exalted to the right hand of god he has received from the father the promised holy spirit and has Poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Thank you. There, um, there follows one of the great, uh, the great uh, proclamations there on the part of Peter. Now, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation, this crooked generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's not a bad harvest. <laughs> thousand. Wow. I want to I talk about this next verse, though, uh, Craig, 42. I, one day I was reading this, and it, it hit me like a brick in the head that this was an important verse. They, the followers of Jesus, the Christians, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship breaking of bread, and prayers. 
What do you think's intended there by Luke? It's interesting. I, I can't prove he intended it, but just about every church, every denomination in, in the history of the church, whatever else they have done, has done these four things. Um, yes. You talked about um, beginning the church earlier, and at least by here, by verse 42, I think he's saying, uh, even though it's simply a description, it's not a command, but I think Luke is saying, this is what a church does. This is what believers do when they meet. They listen to or read, and now that we have scripture, the apostles teaching, they fellowship, which gets unpacked as sharing possessions, not just small talk over coffee, oh, or whatever you drink. Yes. Um, I speak autobiographically. Well, you know, I, I look at those words, each one of them. You, we're supposed to continue in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, I, at least in one sense, that means we ought to teach what they teach. Exactly. We ought to act in harmony with what they teach. We ought to uh, study scripture. Yep. Fellowship. Um, I think I think of fellowship. You mentioned it. Uh, Christianity is intended to be lived out in community. Uh, individuals where it's just me and Jesus, and, right. and I don't need the rest of the world. They're missing the point of what Christianity is all about. And, and they're missing the point, um, not simply of what they might gain. They're missing the point that they have something to contribute that the rest of us is losing out on if they're That's not right. participating. That's right. Every person, as Paul's going to suggest to the Corinthians, every person comes with some kind, or maybe more than one, gifts, contributions they can make individually to this larger group. And, and that is how we all become built up in the faith, is we, we grow to not just to love, but to work with, to learn from others. So fellowship. To and resolve conflicts with. <laughs> yes. In fact, uh, Elder Maxwell, uh, one of our apostles, said, one of the purposes of church is, um, how did he put it? We are to endure our interactions with some people. Uh, <laughs> we, he, uh, he, he describes that one of the things we learn to do is to give and take with members of the church. Some are perhaps a little harder to work with than others, but that's all part of, of getting my heart right. Yeah. Um, we become each other's uh, material that we work on. Um, mm -hmm. On breaking of bread, do you suppose it's eating together, or does it in any way imply uh, the uh, sacrament of the Lord's uh, Supper? I'm tempted to answer yes. <laughs> it could be both. both right? Yeah. Certainly, the the evidence we have from the rest of the New Testament is that uh, those two things went together. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good formula for what what Christians ought to do, isn't it? Stay true to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, break bread, pray. And prayer, yeah. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. 
And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Um, we're going to come back. Uh, in fact, we're not going to come back. Let's go to that now, Craig. This The notion that's mentioned here in verse 44, they had all things common. That's interrupted a bit by two very, very powerful chapters, chapters 3 and 4, uh, Peter and John in particular, again showing that boldness, uh, fearlessness uh, in confronting the Jewish leaders. But let's go to chapter 5 and follow up on this all things common. Um, why don't you read, Craig, starting in verse 1, and I'll just stop you when it seems right. <laughs> now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Let's pause there, Craig, uh, before we get to the uh, the, the uh, heavy verse. <laughs> um, you know, as, Latter as Latter-day Saints, we look at this and we see this as uh, what we would call they're living what we call in, in the history of our church, the, the law of consecration. That is where people would turn everything over to God, as it were, through the leadership of the church and receive back um, an inheritance or uh, whatever it was you would receive that's appropriate to your needs and wants. Um, how do most Christians view this, this experience? What's going on there? Well... <laughs> There's a lot of debate. <laughs> if we go back um, to chapter two, um, we have to deal with, did every single Christian give up all their material possessions? Mm -hmm. Was there a common treasury like you've described, like uh, Catholic clergy often uh, have? Um, What's interesting is that when you get to 432, just before the Ananias and Sapphira incident, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, that all believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared mm -hmm. everything they had. So it seems to suggest that a lot of people did keep personal property, but as there was need, People were generous to help in meeting that need. And one of the ways of doing it was to give money or sell property and give the proceeds to a, a common treasury, um, which was then distributed to anyone who had need. So at the tail end of chapter four, we get a positive example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who we come to know better by his nickname, Barnabas, son of right. encouragement, he does it the right way. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. 
then you get the negative example of the people who say we're doing exactly the same thing, but they're lying about it. You know, I, I, I've thought about this this chapter, uh, chapter five, a lot. It it seems to me that when the, when the Holy Spirit is working on a person's mind and heart, not only are they concerned gradually as time passes, not only they're concerned with being free of sin themselves, but they find themselves more and more filled with love for other people. Paul described it as the fruit of the Spirit, you know, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, meekness, kindness. How we treat others becomes the greatest manifestation of what kind of Christian we are, right? And so it, it would seem, it, it seems so appropriate that once they have been, had this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that, that their hearts begin to turn to their neighbors who aren't so fortunate. And you've spent a great deal of time studying wealth or handling of money why don't you give me your feelings on this um i agree <laughs> and i think the other dimension about what's going on here is the fact that this is still a fledgling community uh, yes three thousand people recently baptized but not necessarily at similar levels of maturity. Mm -hmm. Yes, having had an amazing spiritual experience, but you and I both know that that doesn't necessarily lead to long-term maturity. Mm -hmm. And um, the word that is innocuously translated in the NIV, at least, as kept back, kept back part of the money, um, is the Greek verb nospidzo. It's quite rare in the Bible, but it appears in the Greek translation of Joshua 7 for Achan's embezzlement and hiding of the oh. great treasures that he kept, which led to a pretty severe judgment there also, which was also at the beginning of the time of the people of Israel in the promised land. Yeah. Did yeah. God have to go to such extreme measures simply to preserve his people at times when they were very vulnerable. Excellent. Uh, and of course, I stopped you before verse five. Go ahead and read this clincher. <laughs> verse five. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear, I bet, <laughs> seized all who heard what had happened. I love that. That's 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 an obvious one. Uh, people were frightened <laughs> by the experience. <laughs> I would hope so. Um, then, sorry. This, is, uh, this is just, it's a bit like in the Old Testament when someone violated the proper rules and regulations as to how to handle manna, or someone goes out on the Sabbath and breaks the Sabbath in a main way, you know, the, the command, uh, so-and-so shall be put to death. Or touches uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, yes. Um, meaning, in, in this sense, it only has to happen one time. Uh, and people get the idea. They, yeah. they become kind of a, test case is not the right word, but a pretty good indication of, of a deeper principle, which we're going to talk about. Go ahead and read the rest of it from 5 down on through verse 11. Um, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. <laughs> 
About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Um, this um, illustrates a, a number of things, but certainly probably one of the best illustrations of hypocrisy. Liter literally, what does the word mean, Craig? What is, what is a hypocrite? Well, etymologically, it means under judgment. But the uh, context, the, the use of it was the, the, the mask that Greek uh, actors wore in the theater uh, to show the character that they were playing so that it masked their real identity. You know, uh, years ago, I heard a, a general conference talk by Elder Boyd K. Packer. He said, he, he told a story, he said, when I was, when I was young, I made a decision. He said, I decided that I would give, um, I decided that, that there was one thing that God would never take from me, but I would give it to him. And that was, he said, my agency. He thought I, he said, I thought I was um, giving away the most priceless, the most precious thing I could. He said, I didn't know at that young age how by so doing, I was truly granting myself freedom mm. that 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 devotion to a cause consecration to a to a, an important work uh, labor or work um, is, is what it's all about. Um, he later he said this uh, I was in a, in a leadership meeting and he was one of our visitors and he retold that story and then he said to the group of leaders he says but don't you monkey with this. <laughs> this is serious business. In other words, to reach that point where you really are, are, are saying to God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm all in, as people would say today. Uh -huh. You got me. I'm, I'm yours. This would be the exact opposite of that. Paul will come along and repeatedly talk about freedom from sin, law, death, always then in the context of freedom for serving Excellent. God in Jesus. Excellent. Anything else about this story that comes to your mind that you? Just that in a very backhanded way, we who I suspect all still feel that, gosh, this is harsh. Um, it's a reminder that the reason it feels so harsh is that God could do this a whole lot more, and plenty of us deserve it. But the fact that he doesn't is a testimony to his grace and his compassion, and his forgiveness, that it does seem so rare and therefore so harsh to us. Thank goodness it is rare. Yes, indeed. Let's, um, let's close this off by reading what is, to me, one of my... Uh, 
favorite little sections here in chapter 5, verse 12. By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And uh, so they're on, as we would say, Latter-day Saints would say, they're on Temple Square, right? <laughs> and of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. Um, believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. And this is so powerful to me, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. Um, there came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, everyone. That verse 15 um, Years ago, Elder Holland wrote an article for our church magazine, and the name of the article was The Lengthening Shadow of Peter. Mm. Um, as, as this, as it were, senior apostle, um, as he has now become a man of tremendous devotion, dedication, consecration, and power, the shadow of Peter might overshadow them, heal them. What do you think? It, it, it's a remarkable text, and... Uh... You get one comparable passage later on in Acts where things that Paul had or wore or touched had similar powers. It's certainly not the dominant way that the New Testament describes <laughs> miracles happening, but I have uh, an aunt who's now with the Lord who years ago um, was healed when famous TV faith healer that I was tempted to dispute or not believe, asked TV listeners if they had a Bible to put one over a part of their body that was ill or injured and pray. And she had a miraculous healing as a result of that. Mm. God can use remarkable methods. Yeah. Excellent. Well, like once again, let's repeat what, what I've said before in the earlier ones, and that is it's clear, very clear that two singular events take place that change not just the apostles, but the Christians and the Christian church. One, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. Two, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And these sometimes stumbling, passionate uh, impulsive, like Peter, people become through the process of finally seeing things as they are when they understand the resurrection. Oh, that's what he meant. And as a result of the coming in a powerful way of the Holy Spirit, um, they become devoted. They become singular. They yes. become indefatigable disciples of the lord jesus christ there's a just a, such a great message there one i think we can all beautiful amen well we welcome you uh every time you join us we're grateful you could be with us we'd hope you would mention the program to your friends those who might not know about it and we remind you that that the witso foundation is a 5013c uh, nonprofit organization and that what we're doing here and other things particularly interfaith matters um, 
are funded by the generous donations of people like you.